Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Jonathan Greenblatt. Jonathan is the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, widely known as the ADL. He is very much on the front lines in the current crisis in Israel, uh, is a fierce advocate for humanity and human rights uh, across all people, uh, and uh, it's particularly timely uh, to have you here on Great Minds. So Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, so Jonathan, you have a really interesting journey. Uh, I've worked in the White House and uh, for some great, great companies, member of the board of, of uh, Starbucks and a VP there. But one of the things that jumped out uh, was your engagement on a creative role in conceptualizing the X Prize which I really love. And I, I'd love to talk about that. I know it takes you back about 15, 16, 17 years, but still very much relevant today. And uh, uh, I'd love to just start there by talking about your engagement and involvement with the X Prize. Well, we, we, have a, we have a crack research team here at Great Minds. Crack research team. So to step back, I had, you know, after we sold Ethos, brands, our business that started Ethos Water to Starbucks. I went there with my former business school roommate and, you know, co-founder Peter Thum, and we worked at Starbucks Coffee Company. And Peter had moved up there, block, stock and barrel. I had commuted because I had a couple kids, um, you know, and a wife in Los Angeles. And so I was commuting between Seattle and LA. So after my employment agreement was over, I left shortly Starbucks shortly thereafter. When I came back, a good friend of mine named Peter Diamandis, who I'd known for years because we were both in Santa Monica. Um, he, we had met through the TED conference back in maybe 2003, I think. And uh, Peter uh, reached out to me and said, hey, could you help me? I want to do an X Prize on, on global poverty. And so, look, I wasn't really an X Prize employee, but I helped Peter think about how you would create uh, use kind of prize philanthropy in order to create a kind of contest that would stimulate new ideas and crowdsource innovative approaches to alleviating the issue of global poverty. Now, you know, when I worked on Ethos, I spent a lot of time thinking about the world water crisis, thinking about issues related to water and sanitation deficits and how they impact, you know, the developing world. And when I had worked uh, in government before business school, I'd worked on like applied microeconomics. And so I spent a lot of time in emerging markets in Asia and Latin America. So I'd done a lot of thinking about how can market-based approaches, you know, stimulate entrepreneurship and, you know, enable prosperity. So the idea was how could you apply those models in private sector innovation to alleviate, um, you know, again, in poverty and to boost human development. If you go back, like the UNDP was doing a lot of smart thinking about this uh, for many years. And what we tried to do was to bring some smart ideas from Silicon Valley and from really good thinkers in the field of global development, like Bill Draper was a guy who's, who um, created Draper Fisher Ventures. His son, Tim Draper, is a bit of a personality. But Bill, under Ronald Reagan, had been the head of the UN Development Program and done some really breakthrough thinking. We tried to bring those ideas uh, into the mix. And so ultimately, interestingly, you know, 
We did not, Matt, come up with a way to define a prize. It was hard. We engaged a lot of experts, and we couldn't really come up with a model that leveraged the X prize approach. I mean, the X prize approach is about a, a big ambitious goal, like sub suborbital altitude, that still is attainable and can be done in a reasonable period of time uh, with you know a measurable result that you can quantify. We had a hard time figuring out how we would do that in the field of global development. But um, it was a fascinating exercise. I learned a ton, and I still have great relationship with Peter and with the folks at XPRIZE. And going back a little further on the clock, um, you did some great work with the Department of Commerce in Latin America in particular in furthering U.S. commercial interests. That part of the world is so in the news today in a very different context. You know, we, we see what's going on in, in our major cities. And, uh, you know, I feel like we've forgotten, Jonathan, that our country was built by immigrants. By mm -hmm. definition, everyone who comes to the United States, all religions, all colors, all creeds, we all come from somewhere else. You know, my grandfather came through Ellis Island, you know, what's one of the 15 million that came through there way back when. Going back in that development phase and looking at U.S. commercial interests, Latin America and Mexico is a huge trading partner of the U.S. in particular. Talk about the evolution of the work that you were doing at the Commerce Department back then in the early 90s and sort of where that whole thing has gone. And a lot of it has gone off the track, certainly, you know, in the media on a day to day basis. Again, I'm impressed by your research team because <laughs> I don't often get asked about the work that I did back then. but. But it's true, I was at the US Department of Commerce after the Clinton campaign. I was there from about February of 1993 until I went to business school in 97. And I spent a couple of years detailed at the White House, which I can talk about if you like. But my focus was on international trade and investment policy with an emphasis on emerging markets in Asia and Latin America. And this was a time when the NAFTA agreement, which had been started under President George H.W. Bush was being concluded under President Clinton, which was this landmark free trade agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And on the heels of that, we were looking, and it was also at a time when, you know, the Berlin Wall had fallen, Germany had politically reunified, the Soviet Union had unraveled, and, you know, Fukuyama called that the end of history. And what he meant was it was the advent of like the the victory of will of liberal democracy over over communist you know the communist soviet union and closed societies and so as that happened it it kind of came together with a wave of globalization that, you know tom friedman wrote about in the olive the lexus and the olive tree and so as it related specifically to latin america you had argentina and Brazil really coming online as robust market-based economies out of long-standing kind of soporific socialist policies. Chile, which was already a fairly dynamic place, was working to, you know, access to NAFTA or at least create a free trade agreement with the United States. That whole convert and then Argentina and Brazil and Chile came together in something called Mercosur, which was like a free trade arrangement between these biggest economies of south america and there was talk about actually creating a free trade agreement of the americas of the whole western hemisphere so i worked on those issues in thinking about what were the opportunities 
to liberalize certain aspects of our economy to facilitate a flow of you know, goods and services. With the idea being that a flow, a more uninhibited flow of goods and services would facilitate better jobs, more kind of like economic specialization as industries might move, but those jobs would be replaced by better jobs. Now, I think as it happened, we learned that the kind of labor dislocation from free trade had tremendous costs and our failure to account for, you know, the, the impact of industries that would shrink or even disappear created massive economic strain. Like for example, on much of the heartland in the United States as whole industries like textiles would be a good example and other, apparel generally, but like textiles uh, really took a beating others too. And I think there was some valuable learnings for us that we just blew. And we didn't do a good enough job of how do we, and as we even opened up markets, Matt, we didn't upskill workers effectively, right? And we didn't think about whether certain markets we needed to protect to slow down the pace of free trade. Another thing that happened at the same time as Mercosur and the push in the Western Hemisphere was what was known as the Generally Accepted Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, or GATT, which was something that came from the Bret Woods Agreement after the Second World War, that whole economic order with the bank and the IMF kind of it, um, it became, as it was planned, the World Trade Organization to facilitate a freer flow of goods around the world. Again, this is an age of market-based economies. And, you know, some of those folks in Latin America, there was a series of economists from like Argentina and Chile who came out of the University of Chicago, who really drove much of the marketization of Latin America. Anyways, um, the WTO called for, again, a harmonization of trade policies and tariff policies. So again, a lot of our industries were left very exposed. And I don't think policymakers invested sufficiently in protecting some of those industries and helping some of those workers to transition. The shift happened very abruptly, which again had a very dislocating impact. And if you try to understand why we are in the world we're in today, like with aspects of the MAGA movement, and a great deal of cynicism and disaffection about government. I think some of those free trade policies contributed to that, to the kind of challenges we have now. Yeah. I also didn't even mention China and Asia. I worked a lot on that and something called ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which was an economic block of like seven countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand. Uh, what am I forgetting? Vietnam, Philippines. Now, Philippines, yes, not Vietnam initially. And then Vietnam joined, Cambodia and Laos also joined. Okay. Um, I think Myanmar ended up joining too. Um, and anyways, as those came into line, uh, they were adopting market-based models as well. India, which had been a closed economy, pursuing a policy they called autarky, which was like in self-sufficiency, they opened up their markets too. The whole world, literally, this was the early days of globalization. And the whole world was beginning to come together with harmonized trade policies, which were then essentially um, expanded upon by the internet and kind of harmonized information networks followed harmonized trading networks. And that's how we have this kind of globalized society we're in today. And, and certainly Asia, those countries, as they've evolved, they're real dynamic players in the global economy oh, today. Look, I mean, of course, South Korea, you know, 50 years ago, you know, after the, on the heels of the war, maybe maybe it's 70 years ago. I mean, after the Korean Peninsula was devastated by the Korean War, 
Taiwan was an agrarian place. Singapore was like an island nation. But what you saw with this guy named Lee Kuan Yew, who's a very famous economist and then leader of Singapore, he pursued this kind of market, this kind of statist economy with like closed trading policies and trying to attract capital. And it really worked. Uh, Taiwan and South Korea, somewhat following the Japanese model, somewhat following the Lee Kuan Yew model, adopted their own kind of market-based models that industrialized quickly because they had targeted industries, they attracted capital, they attracted um, industries from like the United States and Europe, and they quickly grew. China took the Lee Kuan Yew model to scale. And so what's happened, Matt, I think in the ensuing decades is you've seen the emergence of these very effective like capitalist systems combined with what I would call, whereas we have a liberal democracy, they have sort of illiberal, I mean, there. I mean, South Korea, Taiwan are liberal democracies. China, Singapore, they are not. And I think now we're caught in this kind of global competition on this idea of which is the best model to run a major economy. Is it a liberal democracy like we have in the United States and many places in Europe, or is it like this, you know, closed society like you have in China, which is one party rule, a statist, a capitalist economy with kind of statist priorities. And it's, it's very complicated. And um, I think there are aspects of the Chinese model that work very well, but I'm kind of long on America. And I think ultimately our, our model will, will be the one that will, I mean, already, you know, we, China has grown dramatically in the last few decades, but America is still far and away the largest economic power in the world. And like our financial system is much more resilient than theirs. Um, they have a manufacturing base, but they still have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of million of people who live in poverty. So th they have a long way to go to get anywhere close to where the United States is. Yeah, it's such an interesting and rich subject area. Going back on your time in the White House, do you think, Jonathan, is a generalization, because I'm a, a, a layman on most of this, but we've not kept up, and you talked about upskilling or failure to upskill workers, did technology simply move too fast mm -hmm. for policymakers to keep up? Well, it's interesting. You know Moore's law about, about how technology, like computing power, doubles basically like every two years. I think the truth is, is that there's kind of an innovation curve. Like if you were to draw the line, the innovation curve has outpaced like the, the, the human adoption curve. I mean, human adoption, not that we don't use it, but rather that our systems adopt and assimilate it effectively. So like when you have senators, and this is not to cast aspersions at anyone, and this is not a judgment, but like when you have senators, senior policymakers who still use, you know, AOL email addresses, right, who don't know what SNAP is, who don't understand what quantum computing is, like these are indications that the technology is moving so quickly that our policymakers who are charged with formulating approaches to handle and regulate and support these industries, they just can't keep up. And the incentive system we have, Matt, like the best and the brightest, they don't go to capital, they go to Silicon Valley to make money. Yeah. And a political system which is distrusted, there's a lot of cynicism about it, there's a perception that it's corrupt, and so, again, if people want to change the world, they go into Silicon Valley today. They don't go into public service or politics specifically. 
So I say that because, yes, I think innovation has moved so quickly. It has been very difficult. And, and administrations, again and again, have failed to keep up with it effectively. Yeah, so we got a lot of ground to cover. I don't want to stay here too long, but just to, uh, you know, extend this a moment, uh, I marvel when we see the Senate in particular haul, you know, Silicon Valley CEOs into Washington to question them on various mm -hmm. issues as, as things, you know, and trains go off the tracks. And I remember one with Chuck Grassley in particular, who give or take 84 some odd years old. And what you're saying about not only an AOL email address, but you know, using dial up and asking really less than 101 level questions. You've been in, a, in policy, been in the White House, you know, done so much in that space. How is it, Jonathan, that the, his aides, his staff, how do they let this guy get on you know, stage or wherever he's behind a microphone and ask questions that a four-year-old wouldn't ask? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think in order to be at the highest level of public life, to think you can be a senator for whatever umpteen terms, you have to have a very high ego, big sense of ego, right? So I think these people sometimes don't realize just how they've been left behind. Um, yeah, and amazing. I can't, what was the question? He asked a question, somebody, was it Senator Grassley or Senator Feinstein asked a question of Mark Zuckerberg? Like, how do you make money? Something that was, was a real 101 level question. It was just, a, it was a tragic moment where you saw like, the conversation ended right there because he had, the credibility was just gone because they clearly didn't even understand the business, didn't even use the product of the person sitting in front of them. Like we talk about things like, like democratic capitalism that we're driving in this country or like the authoritarian kind of capitalist system that China is driving. But the innovators and the entrepreneurs, they're way over here. They're so far ahead. And so it's, it's worrisome because I think like we're living in a moment now as generative artificial intelligence is really beginning to penetrate different spheres of, of industry broadly. And I don't think we have the system set up to, to regulate it and support it effectively. Now, again, like, I, again, I believe in the free market. I'm a capitalist. Like, I don't want the government to pick and choose winners per se, but I do believe the government can foster growth in key industries. And I just don't think they even understand how these things work, Matt, which is at, at best, it's alarming. At worst, it's like, you know, malfeasance. And so I, I think this is something we need to continue to track and hope for better people to go into public life. Like, I think that's one of the things I hope people listening to this consider. Like, I feel like I've been very lucky to work in business and nonprofit and in uh, public service a little bit, but we need our best and brightest to go into public service. Even if you just do it for a few years, like your government needs you, your country needs you. I think it's the patriotic thing to do, to spend a few years giving of yourself and sharing your talent with uh, this, with our country, which desperately needs the kind of infusion of, of human capital in order to succeed at running the whole capitalist system. Yeah, you are 200% uh, right. And uh, I happen to live, I believe we have 435 congressional districts. And I happen to live in the district that is represented by George Santos. Huh! 
which effectively means, you know, when <laughs> we, I remember we, we uh, uh, got all upset with the British, British way back when, and one of the cries of the 1700s was taxation without representation. In Santos, I have representation without representation because in effect, we have no congressman. Forget Democrat, Republican, he's a non-performer in Washington, D.C., you know, ex, you know, sent into exile by his own party, other than when they need his vote. And there's a young man who's running for that seat. Um, and uh, we had a conversation. I know Zach, since he was born, he's a terrific kid. What's the person's name? Zach Malamud. Okay. And he founded Student Voice. He founded The Next 50, which has gotten a lot of young people elected all around the country. And he's exactly what you're describing, that next generation. And I remember we were talking about when Nancy Pelosi announced that she was going to run again. And it's not a commentary on like or dislike uh, of her, but someone in their 80s should make room for someone else. You know, and uh, I hope we can get to that point where more of our leaders are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, as opposed to 70s and 80s, because it's just a big disconnect. And young, smart people are not going into public service the way that you did. You know, I worked in the mayor's office, you know, under a great mayor, Ed Koch, and then David Dinkins, you know, early in my career, and worked very closely with the governors of New York and New Jersey on a lot of initiatives. But uh, I, I will tell you, like, I think there is nothing more noble than public service. Yeah. And I have no interest in running for office. I have less than zero interest. But I think that getting good people to run or getting good people to serve. I mean, I wish everyone would do this for a few years. I just think the country would be a better place if everybody served. Yeah, I think he stayed one term too long, but when Mike Bloomberg came in and put a great team together and got great people from the private sector, most notably Dan Doktoroff, to go into government for you know a period of time, that's exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I think that's why those, you know, certainly the first two terms went as well as they did. <laughs> All right, so let, let, let's move on. Your mix is so interesting. Entrepreneur, looking at ethos. I love the work you did with Good. Um, and, you know, really, really at a time when digital media was really starting to explode, working in uh, two White Houses or two transition teams, I should say. Um, and we're going to get to the current state with the ADL. But that's a really interesting mix of things. Were you, a, as a kid, you know, did this come from your parents, Jonathan? Were you one of these kids who did internships or volunteered or, or did it come to you later in life? Well, I tell you, so I was a, uh, like I grew up in, in Trumbull, Connecticut. My parents are from Bridgeport, Connecticut. My grandparents are from Europe. And my parents didn't go to college. I was the first in my family um, to go to graduate from college. And um, the thing is, is that I, my junior year, I studied abroad. I went to Spain. It was the year that Germany reunified. 
And I had the chance to go visit the town in Germany that my grandfather was from, who's a Holocaust survivor. And to make a long story short for the purposes of this podcast, it was a very clarifying and probably somewhat traumatizing experience because there were no Jews at all, none. And I was there in the fall of 1990, literally like two months after the wall came down or two months after the country reunified. So it was East Germany, it was very grim, but I had this up close experience there and I went to Budapest where my mom's family was from and again, no Jews or I didn't, whatever. Long story short, I came back to Boston for my senior year. I wanted to do some anti-Semitism because I had seen this experience and I heard about this organization called the ADL and I volunteered and I had a great experience. I never imagined I'd come back to this organization decades later. But the thing that stuck with me was when I was a child, my grandfather took me, uh, like I must have been seven or eight years old, to these rallies to free the Soviet Jews. Remember this whole movement to free the Soviet Jews? And uh, look, I was a little kid marching down Park Avenue in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, but holding his hand. But the fact of the matter is, guess what happened? They were freed. They were freed. And like it struck me. Now, I don't think I ever imagined that I did that. But then years later, I joined the Clinton campaign because I still wanted to change the world um, after I graduated. And guess what? He won, which I also did not think was going to happen when I started following Governor Clinton in early 1992. So I had the experience of seeing the Soviet Jews freed, seeing Bill Clinton win. And I guess it cemented in my mind, Matt, that I could be part of something bigger than me, that I could change the world. I could be part of a movement. And that's just always been my true north ever since. But look, my dad was a salesman. My mom was a secretary. Um, they were, I mean, they are lovely people. But I think I got this, this, I caught this bug being a part of things that were much bigger than me at an early stage in life. And it just stayed. Because Bridgeport's pretty blue collar, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of these cities like, New Haven or Baltimore or others like up and down the East Coast, New London, that again, is manu they were like light manufacturing in the 40s and 50s. And then after the war, again, as, as industries moved, like in the 60s, certainly the 70s, those cities never really recovered. Yeah. I mean, Baltimore still had, you know, the and, and New Haven had universities to kind of buoy them. And but Bridgeport never really bounced back. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm in a pretty blue-collar place. And the good pizzas in New Haven. Peppies? Oh, I'm yeah. a Peppies person. Uh, you and me both. Oh, so so uh, let's talk about your tenure in uh, the White House, working as uh, a special assistant to the president around social innovation and civic participation. Under President Obama, that was a real job. That was that was a priority of the president and that administration, not the case after President Obama. Yeah, I mean, basically, the president had created this office when he came into when he created this office when he came in in January of, of uh, 2009. And he basically wanted to use innovation to accelerate economic recovery and boost job creation. And in the summer of or the spring of 2011, the first person was running it left. And the president and his people wanted someone who'd actually, you know, generated economic returns and created jobs to run it. 
And the fact that I had worked in a prior White House and understood the ebb and flow, and I had been credible in a business sense because I'd started, scaled, and you know had a couple good exits. Uh, led them, and I was I was amenable. Like I went, got I got asked to help out with the transition, which I did, which was fun. And then I went back to business, and then I got a, I met people through that, and I already knew people from my Clinton years, so I was put on a list, and I went back to the White House for an interview, and uh, you know I met the president. He's President Obama, very compelling. And um, I came back home to L.A. and I said to my wife, look, I think I'm going to get this job <laughs> and I think we should do it. And my wife thought, that's a crazy idea. Why would we leave our life here in L.A.? We had a great life. Um, we had three kids and my boys were under. They were young. So they were like under eight, maybe eight, seven. No, maybe seven, six and two, I think. But I said to my wife, like, you don't get a lot of bites at the apple to work in a West Wing, like, I think we should do this. I wanna do this, and it's a chance to serve. So we went back in the fall of 2011, knowing there was risk that he could lose a year later, but I thought it was worth the risk. And so the office, which then got absorbed into Jared Kushner's Office of American Innovation, as they called it, which is, of course, the best kind of innovation. Uh, the Office of Social Innovation did three things. Number one, we focused on using service as a strategy to strengthen like the lab the labor force. So I was responsible for things like AmeriCorps and the Peace Corps. And how could we use national service as a model to get more people into the workforce? We can so I did that. Uh, secondly, I did public private partnerships. So like my brother's keeper was a big initiative to help boys and young men of color in philanthropy and businesses. Um, we did an initiative with um, uh, military families. And I brought in like Bank of America and Goldman Sachs and kind of other. So how could we get business and foundations to work with government to build these kind of partnerships? And then thirdly, I was responsible for the impact investing agenda. How could we help, again, enable market forces to find ways to deliver outcomes that generate economic value, but also social and environmental benefit? So I worked like tax policy or ERISA reform, stuff like that, which was, I thought it was super interesting. It's a little wonky, right? But I enjoyed it very, very much. And that must have been magical working in the West Wing under President Obama. It's a dream. I mean, like you walk into the building every day. So look, if you're a patriot and you love your country, it's incredibly rewarding. And I had the great gift of every day I mean, walking past the Marine, you know, eating lunch in the White House mess, like doing meetings in the Oval or the Roosevelt Room. And all the people at the White House are amazing, Matt. Like you're working with the best and the brightest in the country with, with you know, uh, like Nobel laureate economists and extraordinarily dedicated activists and people who've given their lives and have deep, deep subject matter. Like, I think it was incredibly rewarding, incredibly rewarding. Yeah, we had a, a magical night. My wife, Isla, and I had friends of mine created the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize. And in 2009, it went to Stevie Wonder. And President Obama and Michelle Obama loved Stevie Wonder. And the award was given, and it was done at the White House. And there was a concert in the East Room. 
was only about 130 people. My wife and I ended up sitting with Eric Holder, the attorney general and his wife, and turned out we were both from Queens. So we had a lot of funny things to talk about going back to our home. And uh, it was an unbelievable evening. I mean, Tony Bennett was there and it was so it was just so great. And he was so gracious. Herbie Hancock was there and and very good desserts, by the way. I don't know if you had you know, I was very impressed by the desserts. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, like I remember one time, I remember one time being at the White House and I found myself sitting, I was walking down the stairs and I sat down in the White House reception to like do something on my Blackberry, and I looked to my left, and it's Dennis Ross you know, like the veteran peace negotiator, just sitting there. And you'd one time I ran into Ellie Wiesel, just sitting there. I mean, the people who wait to meet with the president are one time Matt Damon, who I knew from, uh, you know, some of my, my life in LA, like he called me, hey, I'm coming to the White House for a meeting with the president. Like you'd have these unbelievable people who'd come through all the time. It was very heady stuff. The journey to the ADL, full circle for you in some respects, going back to your early days as a volunteer. Yep. How'd you get there? Well, the truth is I got a call from a headhunter. It was a voicemail. And I was at a conference in Boston speaking. It was to a room full of university chief investment officers. Um, and I think it was about like ERISA reform or something, whatever. And I got a voicemail and I called. I used to get a lot of headhunters would call me, Matt because having the head of innovation from the White House was a, made this, the search firm look good, right? To put that person on your slate of candidates. But I knew I wanted to go back home to California. When we, when we, took, when I, when we moved to DC, we kept our house, we kept you know, our, one of our cars. I mean, we plan on going home. And, uh, and I called my wife, I said, I got this crazy voicemail. This guy, Abe Foxman is retiring. And they, someone gave them my name, they're interested in me. Isn't that funny? And my wife was like, that is a great job. And my initial response, admittedly, Matt, was, oh, it's a horrible job. You have to deal with Nazis and anti-Semitism. Who wants to do that? And like, secondly, I said to my wife, it's a civil rights organization. I'm not a lawyer. Like, I know how to build brands, not litigate cases. Uh, and, and by the way, I have no nonprofit experience. Like I helped Peter with XPRIZE. I helped my friend Walter Isaacson with a project at the Aspen Institute, but I don't know how to work for, let alone run a big nonprofit. I know how to run businesses. I know how to ship product. I mean, I know how to make, make rep, make your numbers. I, so I really felt like this person, and by the way, I thought, even if they wanted me, we're going home to California. Like this job isn't in LA. So it really felt a bit far afield for me. It felt like they wanted my name, but they probably didn't really want me. But the truth is, Matt, we talked about it. And, you know, look, number one, I thought, you know what? This might not be the job for me, but the next head of ADL should know about innovation and brand and product and, and think about millennials and being global and partnerships. So I thought, you know what? I might not want this job, but I could probably give them some good counsel and that would be a mitzvah. That's worth doing. And I secondly thought, um, you know, I just know how important ADL is. I mean, I knew about its role. I had interned there 20 years earlier. Now, it wasn't in my bio on whitehouse.gov. The headhunter had no idea 
But I just thought, you know what? It's an organization that matters. That matters. And if I could be, if I could make an impact, give them some good ideas, that would be a good thing to do. So I took the meeting without any, uh, what's the word? Like without any presumptions. And um, one thing led to another and they offered it to me. And then I wasn't, then I was really in a fix. Like, did I, did I really want this role? But if, look, I said it before about something different, but I believe in public service and it felt like a call to service. And even though I know this wasn't what I thought I would do, and I knew this was a little bit, it was going to be a real challenge because my predecessor was here for 50 years, 50 years. Like I knew it would be a challenge to succeed someone of his gravitas and his reputation, but I felt like it would be an adventure worth taking. And then I would go back. And one, you know, I tell you, the week that I started on the job, Matt, was the same week that Donald Trump announced his candidacy. And it's been a wild ride ever since. It's like been a roller coaster that doesn't end. Um, and so, but I, look, it feels like a blessing. I mean, I care deeply about my, you know, about my Jewish identity. And I want my children to live here and feel like they can safely, securely. I care, you know, my wife is a person of color. She came from Iran. She had a tough go of it as a child. Like I want, I want, I think, look, my thesis, my personal thesis is that Jews can only be safe if everyone is safe. Like we need everyone to be free for us to be free. So the ADL really represents for me the convergence of my personal values with my professional skills on a mission that's much bigger than me. And that feels like a gift. So well said. Your book a couple of years ago, It Could Happen Here, obviously written before the recent attack in Israel. How does the book stand up in your mind today with what's gone on? And that book was only written about two years ago. I wrote two years ago. And the subtext is, or the subtitle is, why America is tipping from hate to the unthinkable and how we can stop it. And I talk about how extremist rhetoric can lead to extremist actions. And I talk about how you dehumanize people and demonize people. And I specifically talk about anti-Zionism in the book. And I talk about the exaggeration of things like CRT and, and others. And I mean, it holds up pretty darn well. My wife said my next book should be called I Told You So, right? Because the things we talk about here, if we want to understand how is it that a group of terrorists can burst into a country, murder, but not, not just murder, brutalize, burn, decapitate, rape, uh, torture babies and children and parents and elderly and the disabled and on and on, how they shoot teenagers in the back. I mean, the stories are just so grotesque. How can they do that? And then people here cheer for it. I mean, that's the thing that's so alarming and appalling. It's people in this country applauding it. How does it happen? It happens because Zionism has been so demonized. Israelis have been so dehumanized. Jews have been so tokenized that much like the Nazis in the 30s and their willing accomplices, 
people become wrapped up in this hysteria and they think if these Zionists, these Israelis, these Jews are not really human, if they're just objects, they're just they're entities, it's a Zionist entity we need to destroy, then you destroy it. And, you know, I think the biggest crime is that Hamas is not only a terror organization, and it is. It's not only a hate group, and it is. It's not only a criminal outfit, and it is. Hamas is the worst thing to happen to the Palestinian people in their history. Because Hamas has now put the Palestinian people, brought more death, more destruction, more despair to Gaza than anything that had happened previously. And it's it's sad. And I don't think we should, you know, look, like obviously not all the Palestinian people support Hamas for God's sakes, but Hamas is the government in Gaza and their actions have brought so much misery on their own people. They will have to account to the Israelis, but they also have to account to their higher power and they won't be judged well. No, that, that's certainly true. So, so let's dig in here because it's such a complicated set of issues. What brought us together and the work that we're doing with friends and colleagues in the advertising business is built around the, uh, um, the equivalency that has been given to Hamas and the Palestinians and how that has really, really thrown this whole thing in America into chaos on college campuses. My wife showed me something. I was half asleep, but I think I saw an image of students in Florida in mass with a Heil Hitler. How did this train get so far off the tracks and where Palestinians and people, and I know Israeli, we have a lot of friends and family there, markets are closed because a lot of the workers come from that community and they can't go to work. How did this train get so far off the track so quickly? And Israel's really getting annihilated in the PR war. Uh, and like, sort of like, almost like Chuck Wepner, if you remember him, you know, when Ali, you know, beat him, you know, bloody uh, way back when. It feels a little bit like that. Well, I think there are a few things. So number one, if we've looked at the polling and the, so let's just step back. Number one, again, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. An ideology that's predicated not on building up the Palestinians, but on destroying Israel, on destroying the Jewish state, like instrumentalizing it in their bizarro fantasy, like anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism and it conditions people to doing horrible things, okay? And by the way, like the Nazi ideology was very similar. Um, so let's just start there, number one. And that being normalized for years and kind of like it being sanit normalized and sanitized by people in the media and people at, at universities, et cetera, like really put us in this fix. Now, why would they do that? I think people sympathize with the underdog and people saw the Palestinians as the underdog and so therefore they thought, well, it's okay. And again, it's sort of what George Bush called the bigotry of soft bigotry of low expectations. Well, it's okay. It's just how they feel. They're entitled. But the truth is, is that again, demonizing people is never okay. And reduce in some reductive way, think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as David versus Goliath, the underdog versus the kind of overlord. Like that is the wrong paradigm. 
that like that it, that's just flat out wrong. Again, it may fit neatly into like a Western paradigm of how people see the world, try to try to like jam things into archetypes, but it doesn't apply here at all. But number one, years of that, Matt, created the conditions in which something like this could happen. Number two, if you look at the polling data, like the older generation, generation boomers, generation X, even millennials are very favorably declined toward Israel and see the brutality and the atrocious massacres and see those with the Israelis. The younger generation, like Zoomers, are much more anti-Israel. Now, how can that be? Well, it's because I think these young people have grown up in an age where Israel was only the startup nation. They've only seen Bibi Netanyahu. They've only seen the separation wall. They've only understood Israel to be some oppressor because that's been the, again, the, the nauseous, the nauseating, you know, uh, propaganda for so long coming out of these institutions, like we just said. So I think those people have been conditioned to see Israel in one way. It's the only Israel they've ever known. They don't understand its fragility. They don't know the impermanence of like the Jewish condition. And so they reflexively, reflexively support the Palestinian narrative, irrespective of the facts. And then thirdly, look, Iran is the largest state sponsor of terror. Iran has for decades impoverished their own people while funding Hezbollah, while funding Hamas, and fueling propaganda all over the world. We track the Iranian anti-Semitic propaganda, Matt. We see it for what it is. And I think they've been feeding this line into the Arab and Muslim world for decades that people have now come to believe. I mean, the greatest thing for the Arab world were the Abraham Accords, because that afforded an opportunity for a kind of peace that would have allowed Israel and its neighbors to work out a deal and then bring in the Palestinians. What's happened now has been so destructive to Palestinian aspirations of nationhood that I think it's a terrible crime, again, for which the, the terrorists from Hamas, they will pay a heavy price in terms of how history will see them, and they'll pay a heavy price in terms of, I think, their creator will see them. Yeah. Again, so well said. Tough stuff. So how much of what's happening in America here, you know, our 45th president, when he said what he did about the riots in Charlottesville, you know, the good people on both sides, that to me was a watershed moment in giving voice to, I'll just say it my way, to people that are absolutely crazy. And what we've seen in America and what we've seen in the digital and social world, and this goes back to a lot of your roots, the way the system works is the crazy voice is rewarded. That becomes the amplified voice. So I mentioned Santos is my congressman. That's there's 434 more. I can only name a few more, and I'm pretty well read. I can name Bobert. I can name Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, I can name the plethora of people. I guess they finally now have a Speaker of the House. Uh, but the crazy voice is rewarded and amplified. How big a variable is the system, the digital system in particular, of amplification? And then layer into that the effectiveness of the bad guys fueled often by Iran, as you said, with bots and encrypted communications platforms like Telegram that we can't crack into. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so I think there are a few things. Like, look, sensationalism has always sold, right? From like the yellow journalism at the turn of the 20th century to uh, like the salacious content early on, like on radio to um, like local news, you know, that adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And now that's even more true. It's like exponentially, algorithmically amplified on social media, which is, you know, all about clicks and then if you see something and you like it you get more of it so this the the squeaky wheel problem is exacerbated exponentially on social um and the other thing that that aids and abets this issue is the social media companies themselves because of a loophole in the law don't have any liability for what they publish so whereas local news knows that if you put up lauren bobert's lunacy whatever crazy thing she happens to be doing, uh, they actually could be liable if she says something threatening towards someone else or whatnot. So they are, well, will report on her, but won't publish her craziness. Now, the social media companies don't have any similar compunction because again, there's something called section 230, a loophole in the old telecommunications law, which basically says the companies who publish user-generated content aren't responsible for it. And that's a big problem. So we, number one, have algorithms which are designed to promote what you prefer. And like we know the human psyche is peaked by salacious stuff. And then secondly, we have a regulatory environment that does, it's non-existent that allows the companies to just push whatever. It's kind of like, um, what was that movie Dope Sick? About, you know, pushing the opioids with the Sackler family and and Purdue did. I mean, this is that, I hate to say it, but like on steroids or times 100. And that is deeply, deeply problematic. So I think that's how we got into this fix. So how do we fix it? I think we still, I think we need a regulatory intervention to fix that law. And then I think we need the companies to be more transparent about their algorithms and give us more user choice so we can turn off the bad stuff if we want to do that. Right now, you can't do that. You, right now, you can't see how TikTok and Instagram and, and Twitter slash X and Facebook are feeding you content. You can't see it. It's invisible to you. It should be visible. In the same way that there was a time when you bought food at the store, you didn't know what the ingredients were until the FDA instituted, instituted you know, regulations that you have to explain what is in the food products you're buying and what is their nutrition content we didn't always know that right now we don't know the algorithmic content we need like nutrition labels if you will for algorithms the same way we have them for food products yeah i think it's also a a problem that the business of journalism has become a tough business and you know so much of what we read today you kind of don't know where it comes from you know, we still read the New York Times, you know, globally, The Guardian, you know, there were still bellwether institutions that have remained strong. But overall, you know, the whole business of investigative journalism, the way that we grew up has become a, a bad business. Uh, and, and I think that's weakened the system a little bit also. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I yeah. think, I don't know, if, I don't know if it's ever been an easy business, but it's a lot harder today and again, desperate, look, cornered animals, right, react differently than an animal on its own. 
and desperate people do desperate things and desperate companies and desperate industries do desperate things. And so you see it in the advent of like BuzzFeed style listicle journalism and you see it in tabula stuff like it's not great. No, it's not great. No, it's not. Uh, all right. As we start to wrap, it was a, a landmark meeting recently where for the first time the members of the Five Eyes all met together in public. Uh, the Five Eyes, not uh, a often publicly discussed entity, but an intelligence alliance that unites Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. And they all went and met with all the godfathers of Silicon Valley. And I watched an interview with uh, Christopher Ray, the FBI, and it was pretty alarming what he was talking about in terms of how out of control a lot of what we call innovation has gotten in the hands of bad actors. How much of your work at the ADL is focused on that? And is there a way out of this? I'm not demonizing the people, many of whom we're quite friendly with at companies like Google, like Meta, um, but we got a real problem here. Look, we work with those companies every day and I used to work at those places. So I have a lot of uh, sympathy, but you're not wrong. These are like, I mean, there's more computing power in your phone than there was in the control room in Houston that put a man on the moon, right? And we are giving these, these super weapons to anyone with like internet access and a keyboard. And that's terrifying. And so the, the, the impact that a bad actor can have, hacking systems, you know, using AI in bad ways is just terrible. And they did these companies and with the, the way the shares work, you know, they're, they're not necessarily amenable to the kind of shareholder pressure that most businesses are because they have different classes of shares and the shareholders don't have the same opportunity to be at the board and influencing like Facebook when Mark has all the class A shares or Sergey and Larry and Eric have all the class A shares at Google or Evan at Snap and so on. That creates real deep dysfunction. So these companies are so powerful and yet their product is so easy to access, bad actors can get it. And then there isn't much room for repair because again, the way that these, uh, you know, the, the laws are constructed or not constructed as they were. So I think that's very problematic, Matt. And that creates, for people like you and me trying to do this work, it's definitely an uphill battle. We're definitely fighting the good fight and we're fighting it with one arm tied behind our back. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, and, and in context with our conversation about, you know, the Chuck Grassleys and hoping for some sort of regulation uh, and rationality out of Washington, that may be a, a false hope for us. Okay, so you've been at this now getting close to nine years. It's gotten really tough the last couple months. Talk about how you find the optimism and get out of bed every day and go and fight the good fight. You can't do this work unless you have irrational optimism. But I think about what my grandfather survived, what my wife endured, and now to think about all the privilege we have in this country, I feel outrageously lucky and I feel indescribably responsible to ensure that we are able to retain 
the privileges that we enjoy. I mean, when my grandfather was a young man, he never would have guessed that his grandson, that he would one day have a grandson, me, who would live in America. He would have thought Germany, where else would they be? Until one day Germany, you know, regarded Jews as an enemy of the state, destroyed everything that he loved, killed everyone that he knew and forced him to come here as a refugee. Now, my wife and her family are from Iran. And like I said before, they came here as refugees. And when they were growing up, they never, I don't think my father-in-law ever would have imagined that one day he would have grandchildren, my kids, who grew up in this country, in America. I mean, when they grew up, Iran was great until, you know, the fascism of Khomeini turned Jews into an enemy of the state, destroyed everything that they ever loved, killed people that they knew and forced them to come here as refugees. So I think my, my grandfather, my Jewish grandfather in Europe and my Jewish father-in-law in the Middle East had the same experience and their grandchildren ended up somewhere they never would have guessed. Well, I can tell you this American Jew, I want my grandchildren to go right up here in the United States of America. But my own family experience tells me that that is not a guarantee. That is not some, you know, predestined outcome. The only way that my grandchildren will be born here, Matt, is if we fight for what we have. If we push back on the people trying to poison, like, you know, the public conversation with anti-Semitism and evil, just like the Nazis did, just like the, you know, the Islamic Republic did. We have our own enemies here, whether they're MAGA lunatics or Hamas accomplices, and we need to fight for what we have. Now, that doesn't mean you pick up a gun, but it does mean you can't rest easy and you've got to be optimistic. That's what motivates me. That's what makes me hopeful every single day. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I hope I didn't torture you too badly and it was pretty heady, uh, but I think we covered a lot of ground and the work you're doing at the ADL is so important, more important than ever. Um, it's our uh, honor and privilege to uh, support your efforts um, and, uh, you know, to be an advocate for humanity, which doesn't seem like something you would have to say aloud, but happily or sadly, we do. Uh, and we will keep fighting the good fight as well. Look, I got to tell you, I am so grateful to have the chance to be in dialogue with you. Ask me questions. I mean, nobody wants to talk to me about international economic policy, so I really enjoyed that. Well, my pleasure. Our crack research team, as always, performing admirably. Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll speak to you soon.